Welcome to Poets and Writers. This is Henry McCarthy. We're coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus, WEHC 90.7, and I've got a great show for you today. I've got Jim Stokely on. And you folks around the valley here have read and grew up on Wilma Dykeman and The Tall Woman, and many of her books, and so French Broad. So, Jim Stokely, uh, Jim is her son, and Jim. Welcome to Poets and Writers. Well, I appreciate being here, Henry. It's uh, good to good to good to be here. Well, Jim, as we like to ask around the valley here, where are you from? I am from Asheville, North Carolina. I was born in Asheville, North Carolina, but uh, grew up across the state line in uh, Newport, Tennessee, uh, which is the county seat of Cock County, uh, the most beautiful and wonderful county in Tennessee. All right, and your mom, you know, we want to talk about your mother and your father. So talk a little bit about your mother and your father. Well, my mom was, uh, as you mentioned, Wilma Dykeman. Uh, she wrote under her maiden name. Uh, she grew up just north of the city of Asheville, North Carolina, in, uh, in the heart of western North Carolina. Uh, she was born in 1920 and died in 2006. Born in Buncombe County and died in Buncombe County, North Carolina. Uh, but she married at age 20 a fellow named James Stokely, my dad, uh, who grew up in Newport, Tennessee. So uh, quickly uh, they began to lay down mutual roots in both sides of the state line, East Tennessee and Western North Carolina. And they actually uh, uh, divided their living time between those two states. Well, now we're at the uh, listeners out there, this is a real treat for me. I'm at Wilma Dykeman's old home place out here outside of Asheville on Beaver Dam Road. And what you're hearing in the background, once in a while you'll hear a car, but you're going to hear the stream that she played in. And she, as you know, was a nature lover and also a fine environmentalist. And so when you come here and you get a chance to visit Jim Stokely, and you visit this home place, you are going to feel just like you are meeting Wilma Dykeman today. So, Jim, now take a little bit about how your parents met, and there's a Tom Wolfe story in there somewhere. There is. Uh, they both knew uh, Thomas Wolfe independently, the great, uh, the great Southern Mountain writer, uh, born in 1900 and died in 1938, uh, author of Look Homeward Angel and of Time in the River and a bunch of wonderful short stories. My mother, as I mentioned, grew up uh, here in the Asheville area, and she didn't have enough money to go to a four-year college. So uh, when she graduated uh, from Grace High School in, in, the, in the Beaver Dam Valley, she got most likely to succeed, but she also got most talkative. Uh, her, <laughs> her first word was actually three words, water coming down, you know, that she uttered at about one year old. At age 17, she uh, found herself at the local junior college, uh, Biltmore College, which later became University of North Carolina at Asheville. But she had a plan, and her plan was to uh, save money, uh, go to this uh, junior college, uh, which she enjoyed, by the way, and then earn some pocket money working at Cress's down in downtown Asheville. And then the third part of her strategy was to get a scholarship to uh, Northwestern School of Speech up in uh, north of Chicago. She she had gotten it in her head that she wanted to be an actress. And uh, she read that uh, the School of Speech, which which was what they called acting schools back then, was uh, was one of the best. 
and it did turn out to be one of the best and she went there. But while she was still in Asheville in that junior college, uh, she and some uh, classmates and a professor went out to visit Thomas Wolfe uh, at, at a cabin uh, just outside the city limits of Asheville in what in a, in a village they now call Oteen. And uh, Wolf had come back in the last summer of his life uh, at age 37 just to come back to Asheville and, and write and renew acquaintances. And uh, he was at the cabin. He was doing as much drinking, I think, and, uh, as writing. But uh, they went out there, and there's a picture uh, in existence of the mother and uh, Thomas Wolfe in his uh, cabin in Oteen. Reputedly, he, he said after they left, he said, you can bring that girl back anytime you want. But I, uh, looking through her papers after she died in 2006, discovered a, a little journal that she had, a little diary that she had written at age 17. And she says that uh, they invited her again, but she didn't go. And why didn't she go? because her mother and she agreed that uh, it wouldn't be a good idea to go out there because liquor was being served. Mm -hmm. So uh, her mother probably had a pretty good uh, eye, pretty good uh, antenna out mm -hmm. uh, saying, that's not a good combination. Wilma Dykeman, Thomas Wolfe, and liquor is just not going to no. be a good combination. So, mm -hmm. uh, so she knew uh, Thomas Wolfe through that one encounter. My dad knew Thomas Wolfe by reading his works, and he just loved him. My dad had lost his father at age nine, and of course a big theme in Thomas Wolfe's whole whole body of work is, is a search for a father, uh, Telemachus's search for his father Odysseus, or yearning for, for the, the continuing presence of a, of a strong father. So my dad made a pilgrimage in his 20s in the 1930s, mid-1930s, up to New York and first met, just knocked on Thomas Wolfe's door up at the Chelsea Hotel and said, look, I love your writing. And they actually became friends, they palled around. I believe that Thomas Wolfe kind of saw him as a younger brother. Uh, they, were, they were about 13 years apart in age and Thomas Wolfe was the caboose of a big family. So uh, he kind of always wanted a younger brother. And I've got a letter where he, where he writes uh, to my father and he, and he mentions all his siblings and at the end he's got a dash and Jim and uh, he actually the whole letter is sort of a takeoff on Web of Earth which was a long short story he wrote in the in the voice of his mother and he continues that voice in this in this letter so it's kind of it's one of my treasured possessions or actually one of the treasured possessions now at the University of Tennessee Special Collections because mm -hmm. we my brother Dykeman and I put a lot of my parents' papers into uh, into the special collections at the University of Tennessee, but these 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 two knew Wolf independently, and lo and behold, my dad gets a postcard from Thomas Wolf's sister, Mabel Wolf, and she says, "I've got two graduates here, one from uh, Swarthmore, uh, very very intelligent, one from Northwestern, very intelligent and very beautiful." She had two graduates. Two, uh, she knew of two graduates in the Asheville area. Okay. One of them turned out to the one from Swarthmore turned out to be Andy Logan, who had uh, written, uh, who turned out to write for mm -hmm. the Talk of the Town, introducing the new, each New Yorker magazine issue, and then Wilma. And uh, uh, she, Mabel said, uh, Jim, you better come up, come up with a with your brother and uh, go on a double date. So, uh, so that's exactly what they did. Mother was back at home. After graduating from Northwestern, she had had a job all lined up in uh, uh, 
in New York City. Uh, she was going to be either an actress or a broadcaster. She was going to teach at Miss Finch's finishing school in their new broadcasting department in 1940. She had a great voice. So she would have succeeded in New York. However, she met my dad on this double date in August, mid-August of two, 1940. And uh, during the double date, they had initially lined up my brother, uh, my uncle, was uh, was with Wilma, and my dad was with Andy Logan. And midway in the double date, my dad said, you know, I don't know what's gotten into me. Why don't we just switch partners? Let's just switch partners. So they switched partners, August 12th. So this was a double date. It was a yeah. double date, blind date. Uh, my dad was attracted to Wilma, and I guess Wilma was attracted to my dad because on October the 8th, October the 12th, they got married. My. Good. So it went from about August 15th, that's uh, two months, less than two months, from first sight to marriage. And they got married right here, right in front of this house uh, at, a, at, a, at what I well, call Well, we're going to talk about, uh, Jim, we're going to talk about this house. There's uh, listeners out there and around the valley and around the world. We're talking with Jim Stokely today, and uh, that's Wilma Dykeman's son, and I'm here at the old home place out here on Beaver Dam. So we're talking now about how Jim Stokely and Wilma Dykeman met and the relationship of Thomas Wolfe to them. Now, Jim Stokely, your last name is Stokely, so that means you grew up with a lot of money. Is that right? That is not correct. Uh, and it's a long story. Uh, my mother wrote about it in her third novel called Return the Innocent Earth. And I'm convinced that that's one of the reasons my dad married Wilma so that she could tell his story. It's kind of a poor little rich boy story. Uh, my grandfather, for whom I'm named, actually founded a canning company that was initially known as Stokely Brothers Canning. It later became Stokely Van Camp because Stokely Brothers bought the Van Camp operation. And Van Camp's major brands were pork and beans and uh, beanie weenie, still in existence. Uh, and then finally, Quaker Oats bought uh, mm -hmm. Stokely Van Camp for a little over $200 million back in the 1980s. And, uh, you know, you would think that we would have a lot of money, but uh, my dad, in fact, uh, was being groomed. He lost his dad. He lost the founder of the company at age nine because my granddad was working himself to death. His, his brothers had died, and he was essentially a one-man show trying to run this huge canning operation. And, uh, but your last name is Stokely. My last name is Stokely. So I'm right. the grand, grandson of the founder. And I'll tell you right now that uh, what, what the company meant to me financially was $400. <laughs> I got $400. Well, that's a, that's a lot of beans. That's a lot of beans, but it's not a lot of money. And uh, So how talk just briefly about that. I think it's because you've mentioned that. Listeners out there, this is Henry McCarthy, WEHC 90.7 coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus. And we're talking with Jim Stokely and Wilma Dykeman's son. She had two sons. I assume that's correct. That's right. And so talk. we're talking about why he's not a rich man with the last name Stokely. <laughs> Go ahead. And I jumped in. I'm sorry, Jim. I'm sorry. Go well, if you ask anybody why they're not a rich man or a rich woman, you're going to have to wait for two hours until they, <laughs> until they, until they, until they, they give you all the excuses. This is not a, this is a, a story of injustice. However, there is a hierarchy of injustice. I consider uh, the separation of immigrant families at our southern border a real injustice. This is an injustice. I would put it in the poor little rich boy category. Okay. Uh, my, grand, uh, my, my father was being groomed 
what he thought he was being groomed as the head of head of this candy company. He went to University of Tennessee, majored in commerce, came out in 1934, newly minted, ready to take on the company, and he found out, here's what he found out. He found out that uh, he had no ownership in the company. He had no dog in the fight, and he was the son of the founder. Why was this? Because his first, his uncle and, and first cousin had, uh, because his father had died early, uh, his, a couple of his uncles were executors for him and his siblings. And his first cousin, who had, been who had learned everything he knew about the canning business from my grandfather, sort of uh, stole it. Uh, mm -hmm. And the way he did that was uh, in conjunction with a fellow named Reynolds of Reynolds Aluminum, who wanted the, the uh, can, the metal can business that Stokely right. Brothers could give him. Yeah. They engineered a Wall Street merger uh, between a more or less bankrupt uh, canning company called Fame Canning in the Midwest and Stokely Brothers. So it'd be like, it'd be like uh, Henry, if you, as your own company, worth maybe $15, am I correct? Correct. Merged with General Motors on a par basis, on a one-for-one -one basis, meaning every share of stock in Henry's company was mm -hmm. worth a share of stock in General Motors. And guess who owned majority stock in Fame Canning, my first cousin. He had oh. bought it. He had bought the majority stock. So it turned out uh, with that merger, he was by far the majority stock owner. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, my dad was outraged, remained outraged for the rest of his life, said, I'm not going to go work for this, uh, for this unethical, uh, what, what has become an unethical company. And he turned uh, to writing, liberal arts. Uh, he, he, be he became an autodidact. He, uh, he spent, he did, uh, he and his siblings, now get this, at, at, at age 21, in the middle of the 1930s, the middle of the Depression, he and his siblings each got bought out for $100,000. So my dad got $100,000 cold cash. It's a little bit like the Jacob Esau story. For, you know, uh, it's not, it wasn't voluntary in this case, uh, but Esau, remember, sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. To Jacob, and uh, uh, it's a little bit like the mess of pottage being this one hundred thousand dollars, but it was involuntary. My dad would never have done it on his own. Okay, but you did grow up down in Cock County. You then went away to school. Yeah. Now, listeners out there, I'm at the old home place where Wilma Dykeman, his mother, grew up, and I want Jim Stokely to talk a little bit about this place here. It is just beautiful. The stream here is just gorgeous. Talk a little bit about it. Well, it's a wonderful place. It's, uh, we, we, we say that uh, no human owns this place. This place is a paradise for plants and animals. Uh, mother knew that. Um, uh, her father was a transplant from New York, a dairy farmer from New York. He had come down to Asheville in, in the summer of his 17th year. He had read a book called The Great South uh, by Edward King, and uh, that book had some uh, illustrations in it of the Asheville area. He said, you know, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go down for, for a summer. And he went down and herded sheep over here on this mountain called Elk Mountain. And then he went back and raised a family and uh, uh, had two grown children. But then uh, his, his wife died. And, uh, you know, when some, something like that happens, sometimes your mind sort of changes track. And he remembered uh, being down here many years before. He said, I'm going to go back to the Southern Mountains because I liked it. And I'm going to, you know, start a new life. Well, he did. He met my grandmother, Bonnie. Dykeman, uh, who, who, who my brother and I knew well. We called her Grandma Dyke. She was wonderful. People say that mother modeled a little bit of the tall woman on her mother. 
but uh, there was a more than 30 year age difference between my grandfather and grandmother. Uh, this fellow in his mid 50s married, uh, I mean, uh, in, his, in his mid 50s married somebody more than 30 years younger, who was a descendant from the early pioneers. So mother, in a sense, from day one was a, was a combination of what we call transplants down here in Asheville and native, uh, native stock, uh, although I guess you'd get an argument from the Cherokee, uh, the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Indians saying we're not quite native enough. But uh, mother grew up here in, in the, this is her childhood home. Um, and she actually wrote a memoir about it that was uh, unpublished, remained unpublished. Yes. And I found in her papers uh, several years ago when the University of North Carolina Press brought it out under mm -hmm. the name Family of Earth. And that's the book that I would recommend to anybody. It's a great who, book. Who, I was reading yep. it last night and yep. about the nature about this home place here. Right, so, right. talk some more. Well, uh, this home place was built in 1926, and uh, it meant an awful lot to Wilma. Um, they would take her down to the bridge over the head of the Beaver Dam Creek and point to uh, water coming over a particular rock down there, and her mother would say, you know, Wilma, that, that water's gonna flow down to this new subdivision here in the mid-20s, uh, Beaver Lake. It's gonna flow on down to the French Broad River. French Broad is gonna flow westward across the state line into Tennessee, join up with the Holston River coming down from Virginia, and uh, it's gonna, right, right near Knoxville, Tennessee, it's gonna form the Great Tennessee River that's going to bow around through the state of Tennessee, join up with the Ohio, Mississippi, and flow into the Gulf of Mexico. And her father would cut in and said, yeah, but Wilma, that, that water doesn't stop there. Some of that water is going to be evaporated into clouds on a hot day. And some of those clouds are going to drift over the Blue Ridge Mountains of western North Carolina. And we need to come back here in three weeks to this bridge, this spot, and look at this water coming over this rock because you're going to see some of the same water. So you can imagine how wide a six or seven year old child's eyes would well, be. Well, now this is because this is Beaver Dam Creek out this here. This is Beaver Dam Creek. All right, right we're here. right at the headwaters, I yes, guess. Yes, we are. Of it. And yes, this is where Wilma, because you know I can relate to that a little bit, having lived part of my life on Roan Mountain, so far yes. back up in there on Wildcat Creek. You played in the creek all the time, and you were there talking you about that the time when you and I were talking. Talk a little bit about her playing out here in this. Uh, Beaver Dam Creek, or it's Beaver it? Dam. Beaver Dam. One word. Okay. Beaver Dam Creek. Okay. And, Talk a little uh, bit about her playing out there. Well, I mentioned how wonderful this place is for plants and animals. Uh, we're backed up here against Iron Ore Ridge, a lookout onto Elk Mountain, parallel ridges, and then at the head of the cove is uh, is the Blue Blue Ridge Parkway and uh, Rice Knob. So it's we're surrounded by mountains here and uh, uh, we're about seven degrees cooler than downtown Asheville, about, which is about five miles away. And we get, get a lot of rain, and uh, sometimes it feels like a rainforest out here. But Mother, when, uh, when she was growing up, this is really where she came to environmental consciousness, one of the great environmental thinkers of American history. And we can get into that later, but what is really important is, is how she how that environmental consciousness became part of her, part of her heart, part of her mind, part of her soul. And the, the way it was is that she was an only child. And uh, back in the 20s, this was kind of a rural, semi-rural place. It'd take about two hours to get into town. So uh, she didn't have a whole lot of playmates. And uh, she would go visit some playmates and, and, and uh, just loved it when she got together with some friends. But most of the time she was alone, except 
she was not alone. She would have said she was with the plants and animals. They were her friends. Uh, she would sit for hours in the creek, in the creek, uh, not necessarily in the water. Uh, you know, some people say, "Well, I'm, I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid." You know, she wouldn't, she wouldn't sit in the lowest place. She'd sit maybe on a rock with her, with her feet in the creek, heels in the creek. But she'd try to, she'd play a game. She'd try to be as, um, as still as she could, and then let the animals come to her. So she would be still, and and you know, she'd see water spiders and she'd see crawling things and then she'd see a salamander stick its head out from under a rock and uh, you know she would feel that would that would be a sign that she was winning the game at that point but there was also a frog pond nearby a spring fed and uh, she just learned about the life of tadpoles not by reading but by studying every every part of the life and coming down every day to see how how the eggs turned into tadpoles turned into frogs and uh, uh, so what that, uh, what that did uh, was give her direct experience with the plants and the animals. Uh, the, other, the other piece of this was that her father, uh, one of the ways her father kept in touch with New York was he subscribed to the New York Herald. And every, uh, every time that New York Herald would come, he would, he would go out and come back. And there was a column in that, in that newspaper by a fellow named Thornton Burgess, uh, who was a hugely popular children's writer and his column was all about Peter Rabbit and Reddy Fox. Uh, and it's almost exactly the plot, if uh, any of you are of a certain age, you remember the Roadrunner uh, TV shows, it's exactly that plot where Reddy Fox is all the time trying to think up some way to capture Peter Rabbit. Doesn't quite get it done, but Mother loved those columns. And so when she and her dad would walk around these 11 acres, walk around the forest at the back of the house, etc. And maybe in the snow they'd see tracks. Uh, they would refer to those tracks as being made by either Reddy Fox or Peter Rabbit or somebody else that appeared in the column. So the, the forest and the, and the, and the, and the live things within were personified for. They, they were actually people. Uh, so so uh, she just loved it out here and uh, it was a great preparation for her the rest of her life. Well, listeners, we're talking to Jim Stokely today on Poets and Writers, WEHC 90.7, about his mother, Wilma Dykeman. And uh, Jim, now talk a little bit about her books. Talk a bit, talk a little bit about All right. her books. Well, uh, as I mentioned, uh, she thought she was going to be an actress, but she got waylaid. She got waylaid by uh, marriage. And uh, there's no way my dad was not going to live in Newport, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. So she found herself a thousand miles from Broadway. Uh, in a combination of Asheville, North Carolina and Newport, Tennessee. So what was she going to do? Well, she did what she could. She'd always been interested in poetry and writing, so she spent the 1940s actually uh, honing her craft. Uh, she, she wrote short stories. She published a few short stories. She, uh, she actually, during World War II, wrote a, uh, a first novel. It was uh, it was called the valley, and it was the you can see in that in that manuscript the beginnings of what she would later write in 1962 as the tall woman, but it wasn't quite there yet. Then after uh, she sent that up to New York, and the odds that a young unknown woman from the southern mountains would be uh, would get a uh, a novel like that published was zero. So it came back as uh, her uncle used to say, it came back as fast as if you threw a golf ball against a brick wall. So uh, when, she got, when she got that first novel rejected uh, as a young, struggling, learning writer, 
she turned to write about what she did know, and that was the manuscript called Family of Earth, the memoir of growing up in, in this house and, uh, and uh, the first 14 years of her life, culminated by the death of her own father in, 19, in 1934. So strangely enough, uh, the 19th book that she published was actually the first book that she wrote back mm -hmm. in 1943. So that's, yeah. that's book number one. Book number two was a book that uh, came out in, that she wrote in 1954 uh, with, with my dad, one of her most famous books called The French Broad. And uh, that was a book, uh, part of a, of a cash machine called uh, The Rivers of America series that a publishing company called Reinhardt uh, published. And it was the 49th volume in the series, but it was the first volume. Uh, this whole series was meant to be written by good writers uh, who would bring to life the watershed of a, of a river. And uh, she did that, but the main thing she did in that book was put in a chapter called Who Killed the French Broad? It was all about pollution of the river. It was the first time any, any of the writers of the Rivers of America series had really talked about pollution. And she talked about it and emphasized it, and, uh, and with that chapter uh, took environmental thinking in America forward one generation. Listeners, you've been listening to Jim Stokely. We're going to do a two-part series on Wilma Dykeman, and we've been talking about the French Broad. And then ne tune in next week. Uh, we, we will continue this. It's just fascinating to me. And this is Henry McCarthy saying, and thanks for listening to uh, our show on Wilma Dykeman today. And this is Henry McCarthy saying, do not wait up for me. Do not be afraid to stay or still away. I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. Thanks for listening. Beside a singing mountain stream Where the willow grew Where the silver leaf of maple Sparkled in the morning dew I braided twigs of willow Made a string of buckeye beads But flesh and blood needs flesh and blood And you're the one I need Flesh and blood needs flesh and blood, and you're the one I need. I leaned against the bark of birch, and I breathed the honeydew. I saw a northbound flock of geese against a sky of baby blue. Beside the lily pads, I carved a whistle from a reed. Mother Nature's quite a lady, but you're the one I need. Flesh and blood needs flesh and blood, and you're the one I need. A cardinal sang just for me, and I thanked him for the song. Then the sun went slowly down the west, and I had to move along. These were some of the things on which my mind and spirit feed. But flesh and blood needs flesh and blood, and you're the one I need. Flesh and blood needs flesh and blood, and you're the one I need. So when the day was ended, I was still not satisfied. For I knew everything I touched would wither and would die and love is all that will remain and grow from all these seeds
Mother Nature's quite a lady, but you're the one I need. Flesh and blood needs flesh and blood, and you're the one 